From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. There can be no heresy without authority, right? There can just be diversity of practice. We're liberal Jewish people on this call, and there are some who would regard us as heretics, but we don't care because we don't submit to that authority. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and co-hosting with me today is Rabbi Jacob Staub. Today, the two of us will be talking to author Rabbi Jay Michelson, who will be discussing his Evolve essay, The Allure of the Antinomian, or How Jacob Frank Seduced Me. Okay, we promise that title and, and all of this will make sense. So yes, Michelson, a polymath, if there ever was one, has written a new book about the 18th century heretic movement leader, Jacob Frank, whose life and teachings were so wild that they could only have been drawn from fact. This is the kind of stuff you can't make up. So you haven't heard of Frank, don't know much about 18th century Jewish life or the Frankist movement. Do not worry, Michelson is, will catch us up and he'll explain everything and, and, and why it matters today. Why Jacob Frank matters to progressive religious communities, to our broken politics, to gender relations. Strap in folks, this is gonna be a great conversation. As I mentioned, I'm joined today by Rabbi Jacob Staub, who is executive producer of this show and director of the Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations Project. He's also my friend. So Jacob, welcome, welcome back to the booth. It's great to be here. It's always a pleasure to work with you, um, both being recorded and not. Um, uh, it's, uh, I'm glad to be here. Now, before we start the interview, just want to remind you that all of the essays discussed on the show are available to read for free at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for this show, but we recommend checking them out. Now, let's get to our guest. Jay Michelson is the author of the newly published book, The Heresy of Jacob Frank, From Jewish Messianism to Esoteric Myth. I first became aware of him through his writings on culture and politics for the forward, and Jacob has known Jay for, for decades, so this is a, a friend reunion here. Jay has written on the Supreme Court, religion, sexuality, climate change, and Israel for New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast, and other outlets. Get this, he's an ordained rabbi and holds a JD from Yale Law School, as well as a doctorate from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And he's currently a meditation teacher and podcast host for 10% Happier. He also teaches in the Chicago Theological Seminary, and there's more we could say. No, we're going to put a link to the new book in the show notes so you can find it and uh, order a copy if um, if this gets you interested. Jay Michelson, welcome to the podcast. I'm so, so glad you're here. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. I feel like a little bit like I'm coming home. Awesome. Um, been looking forward to this conversation. And I guess why not jump jump right into it? So I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of our listeners probably aren't familiar with um, Jacob Frank, who he was, those who are probably 
um, like myself, read read something about crazy orgies or other other stuff like that somewhere. So I think to get started, um, I know you you just wrote a whole book about Jacob Frank. Can you can you tell us um, standing on one foot, as they say, who who was he and and what was this this movement he created? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I've gotten my history of the Sabbatean and Frankist heretical movement pitch down to two minutes. So <laughs> I, I, I'll give you the expedited version. Um, probably more people who have heard of Jacob Frank have heard of Shabtai Tzvi, the failed messiah in the 17th century, who at the peak of his popularity had up to one third of European Jews believing that he was the messiah. Uh, in 1666, Shabtai Tzvi converted under duress to Islam. He was given the choice to convert or die, and he chose to convert. That was the end of the mass movement of Sabbateanism. And it became one third. A, that's crazy, by the way. I'm just, that is, just yeah. let me think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Sabbateans took over several rabbinic courts uh, in major Jewish centers across Europe, actually. Uh, there were even some true believers who started packing their bags and were ready to head to the land of Israel uh, as part of the restoration of, of the dynasty. Uh, that all ended, uh, but the movement actually didn't end. And it splintered into two underground movements, one in the Jewish world, uh, where a number of outwardly traditional Jews were secretly still believers in Shabtai Tzvi for com with complicated theological rationales. And also in the Muslim world, uh, there were some, a small group, that like Shabtai Tzvi converted outwardly to Islam, but maintained their heretical quasi-Jewish messianic faith. These became known as the Dernma, which is a somewhat uh, pejorative term, meaning traitors, turncoats. Uh, and that culture endured up until the middle of the 20th century, which is really quite remarkable when you think about it, that there were these people who presented as Muslims to the world, but secretly were practicing heretical Judaism. That is where the orgies come in, uh, just once or twice a year. We're not really orgies, but sexual ritual, uh, an antinomian ritual was part of these movements because the abrogation of sexual mores and laws was seen as part of the messianic age, which was now in effect, was now at hand. Antinomian means against opposed to law, basically, right? Yeah, so anti, exactly, yeah. And anti an antinomian is a principled opposition to the law. So for example, if you're not Jewish, for example, and you eat a cheeseburger, that's not antinomian because there's no law or rule that has anything to do with cheeseburgers for you. If you are a religious Jew or a formerly religious Jew and you and you eat a cheeseburger because you don't care anymore, maybe that's antinomian, maybe it's not. But if you do it because davka, you know, specifically to transgress the law, because that's what you think you should do, that's antinomianism. Uh, and so this movement did continue in the in the Jewish world for almost a hundred years. Uh, there were sort of outbursts of Sabbatean heresy and the rabbis knew about it, but they kind of tolerated it, kind of squashed it until Jacob Frank, uh, who was active first in the 1750s and 60s and became incredibly notorious. He was one of many Sabbatean sectarian leaders, but his sect back to the orgies was allegedly discovered uh, engaging in a quasi-sexual ritual in which a young, probably a teenage girl uh, in, sort of embodied the materialization of the Shekhinah, the divine feminine, the goddess, and the Torah, and was uh, had her breasts exposed, and the men and women in the circle were dancing around and kissing her breasts like you might kiss uh, the Torah. This may or may not have actually happened, but it's the most notorious episode in the Frankist movement, uh, thanks to the sort of myth about it. Uh, and whether it happened or not, uh, that was seen as 
obviously kind of a, 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 a shocking moment. And it led to a total turnabout in the way that the rabbis related to the heretic, to the heretics and the heretical movement. Um, at the end of a long series of disputations and some amazing twists and turns of history, the rabbis turned over the entire sect to the Christian authorities uh, to be prosecuted as heretics. And Frank's sect was given the same choice that Shabtai Tzvi was given, convert or die. And the entire sect converted en masse to Christianity in 1759. Uh, estimates vary, probably about 3,000 people, maybe as high as 10,000, probably not. 3, 000, let's say 3,000 people converting en masse. That had never before happened in Jewish history. Uh, some folks listening might know the familiar Jewish rule that you can't study Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism until you're 40. This was put in place in response to the Frankist heresy, which was seen as this outburst of mystical messianic activity that had to be stomped down. Uh, many of what Frank, what, a lot of what Frank and the Sabbateans were proposing in terms of mystical ecstasy and favoring what we would call spirituality over legalism became part of Hasidism, which was another kind of outgrowth of the Sabbatean movement. Um, but there again, there was kind of a fork in the road. Frank's fortunes did not go so well. Uh, he was quickly discovered that it was quickly discovered that his conversion was false. He was thrown in prison for 12 years. Uh, only released when the uh, Russian army came conquering and uh, and conquered the area where Frank was. And then at the end of his life, for the last uh, 20 years of his life, he lived a whole other existence, which is almost impossible to believe that it even happened, uh, kind of presenting himself as Russian aristocracy, uh, Baron Jacob von Frank. All of that was false in secret. He was, in fact, a Sabbatean heretic, continuing uh what he was doing and with the sort of kind of an 18th century cult leader. What I found fascinating about Frank, and we can talk about this more in a moment, was that contrary to some depictions of him, he actually created a shockingly original theology. He told tales that are really unparalleled uh, with one exception, maybe Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav, which is not a coincidence. We can get to that too in a moment. Um, in, in Jewish history, these fantastical stories and strange beliefs combined with a kind of modern critique of religious law, that traditional religious law doesn't work. God does not reward the righteous and punish the wicked. It just doesn't work that way. Stop holding yourself back with all of these needless rules that don't actually accomplish anything. Things which might seem very familiar to a non-Orthodox Jew today, but which were radical and shocking in the 18th century. And so that's why this very obscure figure is one that I chose to devote so many years of my life to studying. You used the word heretical a few times, and I'm interested in defining heresy, especially since we don't really have an orthodoxy in Judaism, a, a belief system that you can't, that there's a papacy or some other authority enforces what you're allowed to believe. Um, so it's clear that once they convert to Christianity, they're apostates. But before that, what makes them heretics? That's a great question. Yeah, I think there can be no heresy without authority, right? There can just be diversity of practice, right? So we're, you know, we're... Uh, liberal Jewish people on this uh, on this call. And there are some who would regard us as heretics, but because we don't keep the Shabbat properly or because we're queer or because we think that the Torah wasn't written by God and came apart, came about over hundreds of, of years. 
for whatever reason, all of those are beliefs which seem to run contrary to traditionalist interpretations of Jewish doctrine or Jewish law. But we don't care because we don't live under, we don't submit to that authority, right? That wasn't true uh, in 18th century, you know, Podolia and 18th century Poland. It wasn't the case that you could just sort of do what you what you did. Uh, the the rabbis still had enormous power uh, at that time, and the community also right had power to shun people. So probably the most famous heretic, maybe except for Jesus, uh, is Spinoza, right? And so there was a harem written, a, a text of excommunication written against Spinoza. Interestingly, just a little side note, nothing to do with Frank, based not on Spinoza's non-dualistic theology, but on his denial of the divinity of scripture. Uh, that was actually the grounds of his excommunication. So because there was an authority and a community to excommunicate uh, and persecute, let's say, Spinoza, he's a heretic. But in a way, all of us are heretics today. When we find our own, the etymologically comes from the Greek term for kind of finding your own way. We all find our own ways. And we all take bits of here and bits of this and bits of that. And so in a sense, all of us are heretics. But formally speaking, when there is a power structure that can enforce those norms, um, the heretic is someone whose ideas or actions deviate from the requirements of that power structure. Thank you. So you, you distinguished Frank from what happened subsequently in the modern period without the communal authority. I wonder what you think of uh, I, of the whether there's a danger, as I think, um, when we focus on Shabbatai Tzvi and Jacob Frank um, and regard them as extraordinary, when there were so many. Um, figures and movements throughout Jewish history that deviated from rabbinic authority. I could, you know, all the Jews in Baghdad in the eighth century who converted to Islam and called themselves Jewish Muslims, the 10,000 who followed Abu Isa uh, on Baghdad in the ninth century, um, the Karaites, you know, the or the people in Provence who, who uh, during the Maimonidean controversy put each other in cherem. Uh, there, are, and I could go on, uh, but those are the ones we know about, and mm -hmm. there are, mm -hmm. I'm sure, many, many more that we don't know about because rabbinic historiography tries to um, cover them up and eliminate them. So, do you have any concern that focusing on Shabbat Tzvi and Frank enforces the claim that before that there was no such thing these are hmm. yeah that's a provocative question um well first i want to emphasize that i'm not putting uh, jacob frank was a bad guy <laughs> he was a very complicated figure he was incredibly abusive to his followers we also don't have the followers voices so we don't know what level of consent there even was to participate, not just in the sexual rituals, but in Frank's leadership in general. Um, you know, it's a little ahistorical to call him a cult leader and in religious studies scholarship, we don't really use that word anymore anyway, because it's really just a pejorative term. But some of the phenomenological features are there, the coercion, the megalomania, the self, if not quite deification, and certainly self-aggrandizement. It was strange kind of putting finishing this book uh, during the Trump years, actually, because there were there were really a lot of similarities. I'm the chosen one. I'm the one who I'm the only I'm the only path. I'm the only one who can fix this kind of thing. So he certainly I want to just be, you know, I put there is a tendency, I think, 
and we've seen it a lot, to place onto the marginalized figure all of the good stuff, right? Because marginalization is bad. A lot of us identify with, with those who are marginalized. But both Shabtai Tzvi and Jacob Frank were, were not you know, paragons of, of uh, you know, perfect behavior or even good behavior. That doesn't mean he's not fascinating. And I think he is fascinating and worthy of study. But, but I think your, your larger point is, is really a strong one. I think from the sort of um, the entry level point of view, though, there's not even aware, an awareness of these figures, let alone all of the other figures who, who you just mentioned. Uh, so while it's true that, you know, by emphasizing these kind of dramatic cases where history was made for a moment, let's remember, you were talking about history, but, you know, Brian started us off by accurately noting that I'm sure no one's heard of Jacob Frank, right? That his text, the recorded text of his oral teachings from 1784 are only now in the last 10 years have been published in Polish. There's, there's not a really reliable English or Hebrew translation of them, um, you know, we're already pretty far at the margins, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, general understanding. But uh, I take your point, you know, that we don't want to suggest that there's this one, I definitely felt like I remember, I guess, as late as high school and college, there were all the good Jews who, you know, there was the one bad guy, Korach, in the Bible, but everybody else was good and orthodox, and they did the right thing, and they had four sets of dishes or whatever, and then, you know, then came the Enlightenment or whatever, and then people went crazy, but everybody was pious before then, I had, you know, and obviously that, that's not just a naive view, but also a destructive view, right, it, it is a, it's a false view of Jewish history that has, um, resonance for the present. I still think I'm on the good team, though, just by pointing out that there were these figures who were really quite original and daring and who were severely persecuted, right? Had the sect chosen not to convert, that would have been a mass execution, right? This was not, and there was, by the way, until um, the work of Pavel Macheco, the leading historian of the Frankist movement. My work on Frank is more looking at his philosophy, his religious teachings. But Pavel's incredible uh, history called The Mixed Multitude really sort of undid some of the misconceptions about that nature of that conversion, which was the original idea was this was voluntary. And Frank depicts it as voluntary. He said, yes, this is why we came to Edom. This is why we came to, to Christianity, as if it was really his idea. But when you look at the actual sources, it was clear that this was under extreme duress. Um, what they had originally hoped, the sect had originally hoped for, was that they would be granted some degree of autonomy from the rabbis, that this would just be seen as a different branch of Judaism, and that the rabbis wouldn't have temporal or, or spiritual authority over them. When that And that initially, it's, there's a long story we could really get lost in, but that originally succeeded. There was a horribly anti-Semitic bishop who took advantage of the movement and who used it as an opportunity to, to enact horrible uh, anti-Semitic decrees against the Jewish community. He then drops dead seemingly miraculously and is replaced by someone more favorable to the rabbis and that's when things went bad for the, for the frankist sect so for her moment it looked as though there might have been you know a little uh reconstructing judaism campus in uh in poland uh where there would be an autonomous area uh for these ma'aminim these believers in in a, a messiah who had died almost 100 years prior Okay, I'm going to be that guy who who stands up in the audience and doesn't want to yield the microphone. So ask a, a two part question, which which is it, it, and it's a stretch linking them. But um... you know, if there's one thing I could be grateful for from the pandemic, it was not coming in contact with that guy for two years. <laughs> well, you got you got me here, and here so, he is. But I'm at, but I'm at a distance. <laughs> on the mic, at least. We're, we're on Zoom. Um, so you did you did mention 
our, our, our former president of the United States and, 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 and some, note some similarities. Is there, I guess I was wondering the first part, is there something about Frank and Frankism that, that tells us that this cult of personality is, is, is a constant throughout human, human history, human development. And, and the second part is you mentioned reconstructing Judaism the founder of our, our movement was excommunicated by the Orthodox, uh, Mort, Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan. Um, you know, by all accounts, he had his he, he had his faults, but not not somebody we would we would loop in this in the same category. Generally, you know, an upstanding person. So, did you see any similarities between Frank and the founder of our movement? Um, I'm going to do the second one first, mostly because <laughs> I forgot the first question. Oh, um, I'll, I'll remind you. I'm here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So I. Th- I think it's, I did prepare for this possible question coming on this particular podcast. Suffice to say, I haven't been asked it before. I think what is really similar, other than being marked as heretics, uh, there, there are two similarities that jump that jump out. You know, one for me is this um, proto-modern critique, you know, this sort of notion that um, a lot of what traditional religion offers is just not true. Either the myths aren't true or the promises aren't true or the practices came along for historical reasons and maybe have outlived their usefulness and maybe were useful at a particular time, but have now outlived their usefulness. But also, this is the second part, there is, you know, there's there's treasure in that wreck. You know, the animating, my animating myth of Judaism uh, is a poem by Adrian Rich, a queer Jewish uh, poet who uh, called Diving into the Wreck. And she describes that this, or she analogizes, I would say, this the enterprise of engaging with any tradition, patriarchal tradition or any other kind, um, as diving into a shipwreck and looking for the treasure that might be there, knowing that she's, she has one line where, you know, there's going to be a book in which our names do not appear. And that's really resonant for me. And I think, I feel like what I find where there is that parallel is that uh, between, uh, let's say, Frank and Kaplan is that there's a recognition of all of the wreckness or that this is a wreck, but not a willingness. The other cliche is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but not, but to recognize that there's also treasure that's there. There's something of value that can be rehabilitated there. The, what they saw as valuable was completely different. <laughs> Frank was not really, he, what's interesting about him too, is he's sort of half rationalist and half anti-rationalist so on the one hand his critique of jewish law is fairly rational is rationalistically based or oriented i would say but he also teaches a kind of wild esoteric myth that in the end of his career was basically about the pursuit of immortality similar to alchemy and to western esotericism and freemasonry with complete with magical beings taken from kabbalah and also from other sources with a whole parallel world to our own, uh, to our own where there was like a parallel sect to frank's sect i mean what you know very wild and interesting but certainly not rational uh, myth making that feels very different uh, but there is that part where there's the willingness or or predicament of engaging uh, with with this Jewish thing, uh, while fully recognizing its its severe shortcomings. Your first part was on cult of personality. I never remembered it. Right, um, right. <laughs> um. Well, you know, I'm just on that. I don't know if we want to go more on Kaplan, but I, what's striking to me actually is that there's not as many of these cults of personality for this period of Jewish history until the Sabbatean movement. 
right? So let's take the sort of standard model of the Hasidic Rebbe, a charismatic leader who has both temporal and spiritual authority over his flock, who is not credentialed, didn't go to RRC, didn't get smicha, didn't finish shas, didn't this and the other, right? But has uh, his, since it was his at that time, his claim to authority uh, through his charisma, through his kind of presence or his spiritual, whatever it is. Um, it's And that is sort of a common figure. I feel like we see that a lot in new religious movements. We see a lot of it in Jewish renewal. We see a lot, right? We see that's a common figure. We see it in, in charismatic evangelical Christianity. What's surprising is how little of that there really is in normative Judaism until, you know, the way I, I understand the history, you know, Sabbateanism, it didn't just popularize Kabbalah. It popularized this idea of spiritual experience that we now take for granted. Um, and it's funny to watch scholars kind of search for words. Sholem, Gershom Sholem, the pioneering scholar of Kabbalah, called it the pneumatic, um, like from pneuma, from breath, right? But that's just another way of saying spiritual. You know, he wanted a word that didn't use the word spiritual, but that meant spiritual. This kind of ecstatic, charismatic form of religious consciousness or religious life that is familiar, I think, to any one of us who goes to like one of those, a good Friday night service where there's like clapping and singing and maybe some nigunim, right? In a non-trivial way, that traces itself back directly to the Sabbatean heresy. Um, sometimes there are direct links like the Tubishvat Seder, which is Sabbatean in origin. And sometimes there's secondary Sabbateanism through Hasidism mediated by neo-Hasidism and into progressive Judaism. But that figure of the kind of cult of personality, I think you're, is in a certain way timeless, but actually it's interesting to see it emerge in history at a particular time um, under particular conditions where, you know, if you were to look at the great figures who we know about from the previous thousand years of Jewish history, uh, they're overwhelmingly not the kind of cult of personality charismatic figure. Um, and yet after this time, it becomes a very familiar type. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our conversations, you can engage in philanthropy and support us. Every gift matters. There's a donate link in the show notes. And please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Those things really help other people find out about the show. It has something to do with algorithms and things I don't understand, but it works. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Yeah, so we, we, you've hinted at it. Why, why does Jacob Frank, why does the idea of heresy matter to progressive Jews today? So for me, I, I think, you know, in the last chapter of my book, I kind of try to make it clear that I'm doing phenomenological work and not historical work. So I don't think that Jacob Frank created the forms of Judaism that we are familiar with today, but he did anticipate a lot of them. Um, so one example, just around rationalism and critique of law, you know, that really came from the Haskalah, that came from the Jewish Enlightenment. And there are points of contact uh, in the Prague Frankist community, for example, which uh, Justice Brandeis was a descendant of. Uh, the same people were Frankists, and then they were Maskilim, they were uh, leaders in the Haskalah and the Jewish Enlightenment. Um, but in general, the Jewish Enlightenment is a much larger phenomenon. And Frankism, Sholem wanted to say that Sabbateanism kind of paved the way for the Enlightenment, but really more contact with Christian culture in Europe paved the way for the, the Enlightenment in Europe. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to say that Frank created or caused 
the kind of critique of, of Jewish law that I alluded to earlier that we're familiar with, but he did anticipate it. This idea that there could be a spiritual, but not religious, the idea that there could be a charismatic um, transformed messianism, which is really, I think, where the real roots of a lot of this kind of consciousness come from. This was a messianic movement without a messiah, right? The messiah had converted and died, but there was still the, a kind of dehistoricized messianic fervor that it's well known, the Baal Shem Tov and the founder and the early uh, pioneers of Hasidism also uh, transformed messianism from the historical arena that there would be a charismatic leader who were going to lead, lead the Jews to independence in Palestine to your personal experience, that you could experience the world to come through ecstatic, in Hasidic terms, sublimated erotic prayer, but in Sabbatean terms, not sublimated erotic ritual. So these are, I think, fascinating um, prefigurations of kinds of Jewish practice and Jewish consciousness that we might really be familiar with now. Um, for me, it was it started out really primarily as a as an academic um, enterprise, but not in a dry sense of academic. I went to I went to Hebrew University almost twenty years ago at this point to um, to write a dissertation on Hasidism, and I ended up one of my books, a book called Everything Is God, is based on that research. But it became frustrating. There was no matter what the theological apparatus was go was, the endpoint was going to be Torah and mitzvahs. It was going to be traditional Judaism. And it felt like it just was, it was infuriating. <laughs> it felt very predictable, no matter how, you could have any wild idea you want, but at the end of the day, it was gonna validate this, this worldview. And with Frank, it was the exact opposite. I discovered his texts, you know, in the stacks of the Hebrew University Library. And I sort of, uh, I didn't smuggle them out. I checked them out properly, but I felt <laughs> like I was cheating on my Hasidic studies by, you know, reading this heretical stuff. And it was, all bets were off you know, wild tales, like sort of chivalric tales of knights rec uh, rescuing princesses and all kinds and vulgar and Frank talking about his boat, boasting about his sexual conquests and the size of his penis and the his superhuman strength. This is why you could sort of see the analogies to Trump. And, you know, he depicts himself, the real Trumpist analogy is that he depicts himself as so stupid that he's obviously chosen by God, right? I, Jacob Frank, I am just a prostak, he says, which is a Polish word sort of means like idiot or fool, right? Like I'm just, I'm just a fool, an idiot. God chose me not because I deserved it, but because I'm the chosen one, which is exactly what evangelical supporters of Trump said, and in, in, certainly in 2016 in particular, that clearly this person does not deserve to be <laughs> the candidate for president. So that's the proof that God has ordained this to happen. So there are these multiple kinds of figuration, prefigurations that I just found totally fascinating and uh, and absorbing. And I have heard back now, you know, now it's 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 such a unique pleasure, right? Writing a book like this, because it's been, I've been like, you know, I've had like two or three other careers over the last 20 years, but this has always been like, you know, a little refuge, you know, I go back to my writing room and I get to sit with Jacob Frank as a vacation from whatever else I'm doing. And now I'm able to share it. And so people have really written back that there is something, there's just something inspiring in the level of creativity, again, not making him out to be a hero or somebody who he's not, um, but in the level of originality and startlingness uh, of Frank's teachings. I want to talk about um, scurrilous accusations uh, leveled at heretics. You mentioned the the uh, sexual orgiastic accusations that we don't know whether they're true or not. And it made me think about um, whether the resistance to um, 
the inclusion of gay Jews as a no part of the normative Jewish community in the 70s and 80s and 90s, maybe the aughts, sometimes came with an, ex an explicit implication of um, orgies in the hallway or, um, you know, sexual licentiousness. Wonder whether you think that had anything to do um, with with the resistance. Hmm. That's that. Those weren't the, the gay Shabbat services I went to. I'm going to the wrong shul. Clearly, <laughs> there's yours as yours as the yeah, gorgeous yeah, in the yeah. hallways. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's really you know. So one of the most interesting uh, theories on this side uh, came from uh, Ada Rappaport Alpert, uh, who was on my dissertation committee. She just uh, tragically passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and she wrote a book called Women and the Messianic Heresy of Shabtai Tzvi, which I really recommend. It's a fantastic uh, book. And one of the things she noted was that while there was hardly any evidence of, there there was, first, it's it's tricky to talk about this because on the one hand, I don't want to be sex negative, right? If people are doing sexual ritual, great, <laughs> right? I think that's a great thing to do. And, the, and right. on the other hand, we also don't want to sort of let the heresiologists tell the narrative. So we want to, of, the, of these movements, right? So I don't want to condemn whatever ecstatic rituals were taking place. I also don't want to assume they were because the people persecuting the sects said that they were happening. Anyway, so that was kind of a long hedge. But uh, one thing that Ada says in, in her book, there is not a lot of evidence, although there is some of these practices, but there is a lot of evidence of women having temporal power in the communities. There were women who were spiritual leaders, who were sect leaders, um, who actually were, were running uh, communities, right? There were also women participating in uh, the prayer life of the community in a way that wouldn't be seen until the 20th century. So, you know, there's like the, all those jokes of, well, this, why can't we let, you know, gay Jews into the synagogue? Well, maybe it'll lead to mixed dancing or something like that. This was her claim really, is that a lot of these claims of licentiousness were actually generated by the visibility and power that women actually held in the movement. And that power was not mythical. That, that was real power. Um, and she goes into detail. She brings a lot of sources to, to defend this. It's not just some idea that she came up with. But it might be similar in a way, you know, it's like, well, if women are having all this power, this must lead to mixed dancing. In other words, this must lead to licentious behavior uh, that, that we want to condemn. There's like the X-rated version about that, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that on the podcast, the, the mixed dancing joke. Um, that somehow if we allow this, this, this to happen, this is going to lead to, you know, all bets are off. We do really see that in contemporary politics, right? We see that now in, in uh, sort of the, we saw it in the, satanic panic in the 80s and 90s we saw, we saw it in the gay panic now it's like the trans panic that like if we actually tell kids that transgender people exist you know everybody's going to transition and somehow i don't know or like experiment start identifying as non-human or something like that you know that's i'm not making i'm i'm not making that up that's an actual right-wing conspiracy theory that their kids identifying as cats and schools have to tolerate that you know there is this recurring notion of like well all anarchy all chaos is going to break loose if if this segment of the population that's stigmatized for some sexual or gender reason you know is allowed to actually just exist um that certainly i think was true i think ada's right about that and i, I think profoundly right in the sabbatean movement about women I should say that while Shabtai Tzvi had same-sex relations with some of his uh, male attendees and another another uh, sect leader followed in his footsteps, also 
uh, had that in his in his history. Uh, Jacob Frank was voraciously heterosexual, and arguably, I wouldn't want to use the word homophobic, but he was certainly he he criticized Shabtai Tzvi for being quote unquote effeminate, for being secretly a woman in the body of a man, which now we might find really interesting, like to explore <laughs> the gender dynamics about that. But Frank did not mean it as a as a compliment. Um, I argue in the book that actually his heterosexuality is so voracious and and kind of toxic masculine that itself it's kind of queer, right? It's this constructing, it's it's anticipating a little bit how the Zionists, the early Zionists, uh, criticized diaspora Jews as weak and effeminate and wanted to create a new Jewish masculinity. That was Frank's program as well. And he's very overt about it. That's not Jay Michelson's reading of Frank. That's that's Frank saying that he's going to create strong Jewish men who have the power of Christianity, the power of Edom. In fact, it sounds like I'm making this up too, but and his, toward the end of his life, he was living on a kind of borrowed uh, estate in uh, present day, not, not far from present day Frankfurt, actually. And they conducted paramilitary organizations. His sect was like marching back and forth doing military uh um, uh, exercises on his on the the grounds of his estate. For what purpose? It's not entirely clear. Uh, I think Pavel Macheco uh, like accurately describes it as a kind of um, kind of carnival, uh, this kind of absurd uh, charade that was taking place. But also, it was connected to his idea that the Jews were going to have temporal power, and these were going to be not even Jews. This was this new fusion of Judaism and Christianity. Um, that again, I, I maybe have wandered far from your question, but I think when we look at the way that gender is a site of dispute around what's kosher and what's treif, what's what's orthodox and what's heretical, that does seem to be a recurring theme across the millennia. Just as a follow-up, can you say a little bit more about the authority that uh, that women had in the Sabbatean and the Frankist movements? Just Sure. Yeah. So again, Ada's book, I'll just repeat it because we're in audio. I don't know if there's show notes for the show, but it's Women and the Messianic Heresy of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, so let's see, a couple of specific examples. Uh, Chaya Shor. The Shor family was very wealthy uh, and um, uh, basically kind of bankrolled a lot of the Frankist community. In the new novel or newly translated novel, Olga Tokarczuk's book, uh, The Books of Jacob, uh, the family plays a significant role on the first, it's like an 800 page novel. In the first 300 pages, the, the family plays a significant role. And many of Frank's, Frank sort of married into this family. Uh, and uh, there was a, um, a, a member of the family who was really going to be his successor, but instead decided to kind of become a gun runner to the French Revolution. It's, I really said every time I talk about Frank, it feels like I'm making stuff up, but I promise this is the historical, historical record. Uh, Chaya Shor was a was known as kind of the she she you know this was the period in the 18th century where you know women were presiding over salons and things like that and and had a certain kind of power circumscribed in a certain way but still power. She was kind of this grand dame figure uh, in the Sabbatean movement and it was an open secret. Everybody knew that this family was rife with heretics, but they were powerful and wealthy and and she uh she decided who was in and who was out and she organized you know she moved people around and um in the novel this part is is fiction is well fiction uh from Tokarczuk you know Frank is even kind of chosen by that family it's like you're the guy they see this guy in this kind of crazy uh charismatic figure and he's they're like you're our man you're going to be the the leader um because you've got this weird prophetic quality to you um and uh, I think that part is, is we don't know that that's true, but that's a really interesting just sort of elaboration 
of how uh, how that took place. There's a, a scene which did apparently happen where somebody came to Chaya Shore from a different Sabbatean community and she took a piece of wax from the candle on her table and made him eat it to prove that he was a, a heretic because that's that candle wax is trafe, right? It's made of beef tallow. And uh, so that was a way of him proving that not she did. She, I assume she let it cool off. That's not in the record, but uh, she, she uh, did that as a test of his faith. But another example is, uh, is Eve Frank, Jacob Frank's daughter. So Jacob Frank never said that he was the Messiah. Uh, his Messiah is a figure called the maiden, the Pana, Pana in, in uh, Polish. And the, this figure is kind of an amalgam of the Virgin Mary and the Shekhinah and the principle of embodied sensuality that incarnates over, over different, over time. Um, and has incarnated in Frank's daughter, Eve. After Frank's death, Eve ran the sect. She had she took all the money in from the she took a lot of money in from their followers and spent it all, uh, and ran sect into the ground. Uh, but she was the successor uh, to Jacob Frank. She was the Messiah incarnate. It's not quite true to say that Eve Frank was the Messiah, but she was the incarnation of the messianic impulse, which was the sensual impulse, the sexual impulse. Uh, Frank actually turns on its head the convention the notion of the foreign woman, which is this kind of awful trope in uh, Jewish tradition that uh, the temptress, the, the foreign woman is the temptress, right? Who tempts all, all the pious men into sexual sin. For Frank, and he says this in his, in his uh, teachings, the foreign woman tempts men into sexual repression and to studying the Torah. Uh, and the real maiden, who is the the fruit that lies behind the shell, uh, the real maiden is is sexual expression and liberation. So the messianic era would be one in which there was liberation, in which women ruled over men. But lest this sound too feminist, it's also pretty essentialistic, right? So it's like women are embodied, they are sensual, they are sexual. Men are too rational and too right. This is actually a very misogynistic theme. Um, right. It's, this is why men, there should be a division of men and women. Frank just turns it on its head. So he keeps the misogynistic dualism of gender essentialism, but makes it good that, that, uh, that we should have the, the embodied and sensual and sexual piece rule over the intellectual. Um, so symbolically, that was Eve, Eve Frank's role, but also uh, temporarily as well. She was not, there were some Sabbatean prophets who were female and who were kind of, um, would enter into trances and speak in tongues and things like that. And that probably came from the Muslim context of, of Sabbateanism. I talk about that a bit in the book. Uh, Eve Frank is not really one of those. Uh, there are some of her teachings recorded in the, 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 uh, the words of the Lord, the, the book of Jacob Frank. Um, they're not as creative as Frank's own. She just wasn't that figure. That's not who she was. Uh, and yet she was still the leader of the sect for um, for 25 years after Frank died. Since we actually are recording on on Election Day, although folks w- folks won't hear this for a couple of weeks. And and Jay, you do cover politics for Rolling Stone, Daily Beast, other places. I, I, I guess I was wondering if there's if there's a political analogy or, or ramifications today first with with this you know idea that that um we make scurrilous accusations against those we don't agree with maybe we we put them beyond the pale but also this this idea of heresy like we said there's not really a religious authority now for non-orthodox jews but i'm wondering if there's if there's a political authority in a sense like we hear there's a whole debate on whether or not there actually is a, a cancel culture, but but there's there's this idea that you know it's 
it's been said many times that certainly on the left, if you if you if you say certain things, challenge certain things, you're you're out, you're off, you're you're you know you're the equivalent of excommunicated. And certainly we've seen on the right, if you don't, ex, you know, in, if you if, if you're certainly if you're a public official and you don't you haven't accepted, um, you know, or or you haven't denied the results of the 2020 elections, say you're 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 primaried and and probably out of there. So so. I guess I'm wondering: is that is 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 that an analogy worth making? Does does what happened in you know 17th century Poland have any bearing on America and other democracies today and how we find our way forward? Sure. Let me the second part. Now I'll do the second part. Second, the first part first. You know, for me, I think the distinction between heresy and so-called cancel culture is the question of harm. So let's stipulate that there are excesses and people are um, sometimes shunned or, or canceled or whatever the word is that we want to use, you know, and maybe they don't deserve it. Okay, so let's assume that that's true. But the ones who do deserve it, at least from the, from the left point of view, are those who have caused harm, right? Who cause harm through their actions, whether it's, you know, sexual misconduct or something like that, or cause harm through hate speech or by denying the re denying scientific reality and the reality of lived experiences of millions of people and in ways that don't just make people feel bad. I think that's the right wing myth, but actually cause harm, right? Mm. So when someone says, when a, a well-known Jewish publication that rhymes with Schmablet runs a transphobic piece of garbage on their front page <laughs> that denies transgender identity, that's not, that's not that doesn't just make trans people feel bad. That's not the offense. The offense is that it causes profound harm, mm. right? It's, it's, it's false. It's scientifically false, according to every major medical organization in the country. And it leads directly to policies, you know, so right now, trans affirming healthcare is illegal in Florida and partly illegal in Texas, right? So for me, the difference between just, let's say, just heresy and what deserves to be canceled is that the latter is what causes actual harm, especially to, to vulnerable people. You know, for me, the, the closest, so I can't make my careers cohere at all. You know, Jacob knew me when I was a professional LGBTQ activist. Now I'm a professional Buddhist meditation teacher. And I also, you know, write for write journalism. And, and now I've written this book on Jacob Franklin. So I would don't take any career advice from me uh, where I do see a kind of overlap or a, a connection point actually is in the shadow side of Jacob Frank. I do think there's this kind of anger that's present in his work. That's obviously present in our public culture. Um, and at least from Frank's point of view, he didn't have a lot of access to power. So where he did have power was over his own sect, his immediate sect, and he was abusive to his own sect. But at least he didn't have the kind of power that um, the, the rabbis had, the power to excommunicate and the power to cause people to be executed by, by the Christian authorities. Um, it's that functioning of power when yoked to anger that I do find quite terrifying. Um, those listening know the results of the election and we don't, but regardless of that, you know, moment in history, there's clearly a period, we're in the period now where the degree of someone's anger is seen as an indicator of their merit, particularly on the right, I think, uh, but also, you know, elsewhere as well. And that, that is sort of true in Frank, and it's one of the most toxic, I think, aspects of him. And it's reading those 
you know, when it's somebody marginal saying like, I, I went, so he has a story where um, he goes into, and this is actually a story that has a, a theological teaching. He goes into the, a synagogue that's the uh, Kahal, I think it's Beit Eliyahu, but it's something, the, the, the synagogue of Eliyahu, of Elijah, the prophet. And he goes in and there's the shamus, which translates into beetle, but I don't know if that means anything. It's the guy who takes care of the shul. And he says, um, where's Eliyahu? Where's Elijah? The shaman says, like, what are you talking about? I mean, they have the chair. There's the chair where, you know, there's the customary chair where you do a brit milah, circumcision. It's Elijah's chair. But what do you mean? And Frank says, well, what do you mean? What do I mean? It says right here that this is the congregation of the prophet Elijah. Where the hell is the prophet Elijah? And right. So it's like, this is Frank's theology. Like if you're, if don't tell me that it's the, the congregation of Elijah, if you don't have Elijah, but then Frank starts beating the guy up. Right. And so it turns it from the story now. Do I think this actually happened? No, this is Frank's myth-making. But he chooses to tell this myth. He chooses to tell the story where he beats him up. And then, then the police come because they hear that there's a fight going on. And Frank explains, he said, this guy said it. This is the congregation of Elijah, but Elijah's not even here. And the cops say, cops is maybe a bit of an anachronism. The cops say, yeah, beat him up, beat him up. And so that's what he does. And that's how the story ends. So it's this story that combines, you know, there's Frank in a nutshell, combines a pretty interesting, daring, no one tells stories like that, right? There's not a lot of people who told stories like that in, in 1784. Uh, fascinating story, but also incredibly troubling, right? Violent. And then, you know, bringing in kind of the apparatus of the state uh, to kind of endorse that violence. And so it's in the shadow side for me of Frank, where I see the, uh, the resonances with our political moment. I don't know if there's a good uh, answer to this. We can always cut it. But let me go ahead. Do you have an, anything in the works in terms of your uh, scholarly writing, or what's your next book? Or well, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll turn that into a pitch as soon as I can find some funding to write a queer Judaism, which is my queer Jewish theology book that's already mostly written. I just have to assemble it from different places where I've done it. That would be great. I just need a, I need some, I need a grant to make that happen. So, Jacob, you have your finger on untold yeah, millions. Right. So that that it might be a queer Judaism. Uh, it may actually be. I could also sneak preview that. Um, I guess I shouldn't name them because we haven't signed the contract. But a very cool alternative Jewish press may be publishing my fiction, uh, which. Um, is subtitled 10 heretical tales. Jacob, you've read it, right? You're one of the 10 people on the planet who've actually read my short stories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that may actually end up being the next book, depending on how the timing goes. I don't think there's, I mean, a queer Judaism is a scholarly book. So that would be my second and probably last uh, scholarly book of this type. Um, but uh, yeah, and that, that book is largely about the expansive uh, big umbrella of queer, so including hybridity and boundary crossing. So that's where it intersects with Frank. Um, you know, he attempted to cross boundaries in a way that, again, all of us can do now, right? I mean, I'm a hybrid human being, not just three or four careers, but three or four religious paths, and you know, a lot of different. There are a lot of hybridities in my existence, and and that's just the world in which I live, and I think a lot of other people do too. I don't think I'm unique, but in that by any way, by any stretch, and and yet. You know, Frank was also that, right? Jewish Christian, Jewish Muslim, heretical, temporal, spiritual temporal. Um, but we live in a very different moment uh, than he did, in which um, I certainly haven't experienced the the persecution that he has. I did get a uh, a virtual copy of the book, and I saw you wrote that the problem with Frank wasn't that he was too radical, it's that he wasn't radical enough. 
Um, and I feel like I maybe heard that in a couple of your couple things you said today, but I was wondering if you could say more because, because I mean, he sounds pretty radical in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. I don't know that it would have been possible for him to be more radical and live uh, at that time. Um, but what I was referring to there was, you know, there is a kind of the way that he anticipates so much of 20th and 21st century, not just Judaism, but spiritual, but not religious consciousness and transcending boundary consciousness. Um, there is a that there are these very radical aspects uh, of him, and yet there are also parts which are very not radical. Um, that it that he did operate as a kind of patriarch, that he did, um, that he was still playing on what Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalom used to call like the reality map, the old reality map of myth and immortality and so forth. So, you know, that the idea we, as in most of the conversations I've had around the book, we've, we've mostly focused on the critique and less on the weird Western esotericist alchemical myth that Frank spins. But the idea that liberation was still going to come in this kind of very temporal way, like literally the sect was supposed to gain immortality and live forever and, and never die and be you know youthful forever and so forth. And he, in in text after text, Frank says, "Oh, when my help comes to me, I'm gonna I'm gonna furnish my court in gala dress and we're gonna have great food and we're gonna have great performances." And there's something first a little bit pathetic, I think, about some of the the ways that you know he's articulating his dream of the future. There's there's not it's not a 21st century or 20th century um, wisdom, let's say. Um, and so there's this, you know, he's got these, his feet in these multiple worlds, you know, there's one foot in a, in the world of that I think is relatable for us. And another that's still, in, you know, look, he is an 18th century figure that's still very much tied to that time and to that place and to a more limited conception um, of what the world to come could really look like, literally down to the drapes and the fruit jam. And he goes into a lot of specific detail in, in this in in the text. So I think, and I'm building there just to close this piece on the, uh, you know, building there on a talk that Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi gave a few years ago, comparing Sabbateanism to to Jewish renewal and saying that while there are certain points of contact and similarity, which we've talked about. Um, Ultimately, we're maybe more radical because we take for granted that this old reality map is insufficient. And this is certainly true for Kaplan, right? This, this map of the world, the way, the way it's handed in a particular traditional way, just isn't true. It's not binding. It's not, it doesn't have, it, may, it had value in the past, but not now. And so in a way, we're more radical. Uh, not less radical than the, you know, the wild sexual antinomian ritual Sabbateans, you know, with their, uh, with their bizarre messianic ideas. Um, because the world in which that, which they wanted to inhabit, but also transcend, we've already left behind. So thank you. Thank you so much. That was, that was a, a wonderful conversation. Um, led us into a world, I think, a lot of us are unfamiliar with, and yet there, 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 there's familiarity and that unfamiliarity. So, um, uh, thank you. And, and, and I certainly hope, uh, hope we get to talk to you again when, when the next book comes out. Thanks. I'm around. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with Jay Michelson. What did you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you have. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. 
We'll be back next month with an all-new episode. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time.